Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is Ro reading chapter 7 of Death and Other Origin Stories. Ishtar writes, Please be advised. This chapter contains discussions of rape, child sexual abuse, indoctrination, drug use, absinthe-related hallucinations, and the use of the imperious curse for sexual control of muggles, as well as misogyny or misogynoir. The moon became something new after that, something bright and luminous and exciting that appeared and disappeared on the horizon above the forbidden forest, a cradle or a nearly full orb rising and falling gently across the star-strewn sky. The lunar cycle became a new calendar, a new way to track time, to plot their misdeeds and kitchen raids, a light across the dark grounds in its fullness, or just as much cover as the cloak, on the darkest of its newness. The moon became their guide, and Sirius felt himself wax and wane with it, wax and wane with Remus, who had fallen into his friends knowing about his condition with all the fumbling, frantic grace a wolf could muster. They all became so aware, so accustomed to watching him eat as the moon diminished in the sky, then lapse into sullen and apathetic fasting as it grew again, bright and unapologetic in its cycle. They became aware of how he seemed to tauten as the fullness came, tight and wiry and fidgeting. They became aware and they adjusted, and they knocked his hand away as he picked endlessly at the errant threads of sweaters. They helped him not unravel them, as tempting as it was, for there was no one left to knit them together again. They kept him from coming undone. Sirius began taking Remus for walks on the grounds in the evenings that heralded the brighter night sky. Walks where they would skirt the lake and Sirius would sing odes to the giant squid or else dip beneath towering trees that edged the great forest beyond, where they'd pretend to track the unicorn herds. They'd push great ferns aside and the dew of spring would shower over them and it would be bright and fresh and green and they'd both feel so much safer there in the vastness of the unknown, in the lushness of it. They'd talk about classes, sometimes Quidditch. Sirius spent a whole afternoon griping about potions in mid-April. They were laying back in a copse of birch trees, Sirius picking apart one of the rolls of bark that had long since fallen away from its tree, mixing with many others that littered the soft forest floor. He shredded it into strips, and it sprung back into the curve of the trunk it still remembered. Slughorn favors you, though, Sirius. He does, Remus had said, seeming to furrow his brow and not quite understand why Sirius would be so reluctant to accept the good graces of their corpulent potions professor, who had so jovially declared in mock amusement at the lovely azure tones of Sirius's calming draft. Remus shredded his own roll of birch bark between prematurely gnarled and scarred hands, His calming draft had been maroon and smelled of bad eggs. He favors me because I am a black, Remus, not because I'm worth anything outside of my name. Sirius was minorly rubbish at potions. Not as bad as Peter was, true, or even many others who fumbled and dithered about in the putrid clouds of steam they had created. Not even as bad as Remus, if he was honest, though the calming draft was a cruel assignment for the day before the moon. No, but he wasn't brilliant, and he certainly didn't deserve the praise that Slughorn lavished on him. He could even admit he wasn't as good as Snape, nor Lily, 
or even James. And of all of them, only James seemed to get the big laughs and accolades Sirius often received in the dungeon classroom. No, unlike Snape and Lily, these were gifts of his pedigree, and James's, as his father was some famous hair product potioner. And it always made Sirius feel as though something slithered beneath his skin, something dirty and cruel, and that felt so very hauntingly as it did when his mother looked at him. Every time he fawns over something I've made, it's as if he's fawning over the blacks. It's strange, Remus, you wouldn't understand, but Slughorn is a sacred 28. I can't trust him. Sirius thought of the times he had seen Eugene Slughorn, the elder of the two brothers, at events and parties, and the way he sucked on the bones of pheasants and tipped back enough of the elf-made wine to make his words thick, thick and slurred enough that he would tell jokes about muggle-borns and expect them all to laugh, and they would, because Eugene Slughorn sat on the Wizengamot and headed the Department of Experimental Charms. What do you mean, trust him? What do you have to trust him about? And what the bloody hell is the Sacred 28? Forget it, Remus. Sirius scraped his toe along a line of pretty soft moss on the roots of an errant elm between the birch trees, the one he had chosen to lean his back against. It felt right. The dark bark and the cradling roots. Nothing like the stick-straight white trees that seemed to lend the forest light, not soak it up. Serious. Remus looked up at him and tossed a bit of birch bark at his head. Come on, can't you tell me? Take pity, I was basically raised a muggle. Remus got up from his spot beneath a very spindly tree to sit in front of Sirius, below the crown of the lone elm. Sirius closed his eyes a moment and leaned back, breathing in the soft smells of the forest, the fresh grass bent by their movements, the moss that still held so much water from the last rains, the elm itself, sturdy and steady. He could hear the bow truckles above fighting over the best bough for the woodlice hunting, and the soft magic of the tree, deep and steady. It seemed to wrap around him, his body snug between roots, his spine against the bark. He rubbed a smooth pebble between his fingers. Elmwood, in wands, was highly prized among purebloods. Sirius sighed the thought away and felt the magic of the tree behind him. Gentle, sure, not a twinge of cruelty. He wondered if Remus would feel the same quiet grace, or perhaps disdain, or nothing at all. The Sacred 28 are a list of 28 pureblood families. They're sort of the core of pureblood culture, old wizarding families that have amassed power and influence over the centuries, always making sure their blood remains as magical as possible. The keepers of all the old ways, you know, traditions, holidays, businesses even, and many of the old families are deep in politics. They're all throughout the Wizengamot. He opened his eyes to look at Remus, whose dirty blonde hair was getting long and often hung above his eyes. Remus looked politely interested, blasé even, sort of like he had expected something like this, a wizarding elite, gatekeepers to the magical world. Sirius considered the boy before him. Of course he imagined there were gatekeepers of magic. That had been his whole experience. He was a werewolf, after all, already an outcast, above and beyond being raised in the muggle world, a half-blood. He considered him a moment longer, and his long hair and his freckles, and his scars. 
That doesn't sound so bad, though. I'd love to know more about old wizarding culture and all the strange things you seem to get up to. Stuff I don't know anything about. Like how you already knew so much magic, and history of magic. You're like an encyclopedia of that stuff. Remus was braiding blades of grass now, sitting across from Sirius's dragonhide boots, his own dirty sneakers full of frayed fabric and the thread of holes. They have a lot of power in the wizarding world, Remus. They, not him. He never felt powerful. No, not powerful. At their mercy, that's how he felt. Maybe more so than Remus did. Which made Sirius trip over his next few words, for the idea was startling and robbed him of his composure a bit. You would think it was fine if... if maybe you didn't consider so many of those traditions and tenets of culture are about supremacy and about how purebloods are better, more powerful, more deserving of their magic than others. You wouldn't think it always meant that muggle-borns were deemed inferior. Not just muggle-borns, everyone, other creatures. He watched Remus and the way his scars seemed to stretch a bit at the idea, the way he seemed to tauten, like the way the impending fullness of the moon made him tense. He ripped apart the blades of grass he had been braiding. And muggles themselves, they're seen as lesser. Maybe it wasn't always like that, I don't know, but, but that's what it's become, I think, or so people say, so my parents say, anyway. Sirius rubbed his palms against his face. He wasn't sure how to explain how he knew it was something cruel and ugly. He just knew it was. It was the way they laughed about making legislation that would hurt muggleborns, the way they joked about hunting them, like the old days, and the way Remus had cried about his mom, the way Remus was himself, a wolf, but really just another boy whose life had been upturned by cruelty and circumstance, and who was now just doing his best to be normal, to learn magic, and the things his family would say about this boy, no, Sirius wouldn't be part of it. He felt the thrum of the magic in the elm at his back. James did say your dad was quite the character. Very biased against Hufflepuff, it seems, Remus said softly, looking down at his own hands now, only smiling just a little. Sirius huffed and tilted his head back against the rough bark, looking up at the little strips of sky visible above and between the old boughs, dark blue and interspersed with great clumps of drifting clouds, lazy and slow in the warming winds of coming spring. Sirius didn't know how to explain it. He just knew where he stood, at their mercy, and he didn't trust them with that much power. It was that simple. He imagined sometimes that it was the Gryffindor in him, that he knew right from wrong, without really knowing much about why. The hat had barely said anything to him, just, oh, now this one's easy, Gryffindor, and that had been that. No explanation, no discussion, just truth. And Sirius had felt it ring true in his heart and his bones, and the way it made him fill with pride. He nearly said aloud how he wouldn't let them beat it out of him, that pride, that righteousness, that sense that he wouldn't be seduced into their world, couldn't be, that he was stronger, even while at their mercy, even when in so much pain. But he didn't tell Remus this. He just stood, brushing off his dark trousers with the glorious black t-shirt he'd long since stolen from James, nodding his hair up in a bun and securing it with his wand of you. 
Come on, Remus. I'll be late for Quidditch practice if we don't hustle up, and Longbottom's been in a towering temper all week as it is. Sirius offered Remus his hand, ready to pull him to his feet. The feel of the elm seemed to fade from him as he moved away. Oh, what is it this time? Alice break up with him again. Remus took the proffered hand and let Sirius do all the lifting as he straightened out his long legs and heaved his bag up on his shoulder. None, nothing like it. Just the Slytherin match coming up, and you know how he gets when they're riling him. All the taunts they make up about the chasers and pepper, foul gits. What I wouldn't give to land a bludger right across that fifth-year Tiberius McClagan's smarmy face. Sirius snickered at the thought and pretended to swing his bat, the motion satisfying and fluid. I've been putting Bulbadox powder in all of their gear. James and I snuck into the changing rooms by the pitch the other night. Wasn't hard at all, just a little alohomora and we were in. Sirius laughed loud and bright at the memory of it. He couldn't wait to see the rashes it would lead to, the itching. They'd all be covered in nightshade poultice for at least a week to get rid of the redness. Fools. Remus sighed heavily and gave Sirius an endeared sort of look, though Sirius knew he had hardly approved of this low-level sabotage. Sirius knocked his shoulder gently against Remus and ruffled his hair. Give me a break, you cur. Not all of us are paragons of utilitarian nonviolence. Remus rolled his eyes, but it was fond and entirely like him, so Sirius let it go, and rather treated Remus to a solid 17-minute lecture on beater tactics that he and Gideon would be going over for the next week in hopes of annihilating the Slytherin beaters in the coming match. Two huge blokes, Crab and Goyle, complete trolls on brooms, but absolutely capable of knocking someone unconscious with a bat, as it were. April 22nd, 1973. In the end, they had secured an absolutely devastating defeat of Slytherin, with James scoring several stunning goals and Sirius landing a positively foul hit right to seventh-year chaser Poe Marin's abdomen as she reached to catch the quaffle in the first half of the match. She'd been out the rest of the game, and they had to play their backup, some idiot second-year named Wilkes who could barely stay on his broom. Then, like the dynamite she was, Pepper had absolutely robbed the Slytherin seeker of the snitch, really stole it from just a hair's breadth beyond their fingers in a spectacular swooping dive. Gryffindor had celebrated, and rightly so, until the small hours of the morning when McGonagall had come storming into the common room, issuing a cease and desist, though really Sirius had thought she was hiding a smile somewhere in the rage. Well, it was several days later, the start of the Easter holiday, sitting at breakfast in the Great Hall, that Sirius got an owl. A very large screech owl, in fact. His father's owl. And it had been carrying a rather large and ungainly wooden crate, which Sirius had opened with as much trepidation and under Remus's very nervous and wide-eyed gaze, James tipping over his shoulder to see what was causing all the fanfare, Peter at his other elbow, spluttering his confusion. In the box, there had been a hare, a gray one, slit from stomach to sternum, entrails spilling out. Beside the hare, which almost immediately became a meal for the very insistent screech owl, much to everyone's discomfort, was a letter, penned in his father's elegant French script. 
It was, as Sirius quickly realized, an invitation which he read with shaking hands as several more owls now crowded around the box and there was much background screeching and James insisting that everyone remain calm. The men of the family black, as was custom, were to make an appearance at the Ishtar Rites, a yearly summit that had its roots in a spring ceremony for the old gods. Each year, Sirius had dreaded the appearance of the gray hair somewhere in the house. Each year, he had to watch as the hair was caught and split open. His father's hands, so often disinterested in violence, would fish between its entrails for the coveted golden egg. Oh, and how he coveted it, gleeful and wicked. It was the only time of year that Sirius would see his father smile with so many teeth. Decorum for Ishtar was seemingly forgotten. This year, in the spring of his 13th, Sirius was old enough to attend, and it seemed he was expected to, though he had never thought that his father would call to him here and now while he was ensconced, protected, at Hogwarts. Not while he was busy with Quidditch and lessons and being someone new, someone different from the heir to the House of Black. He knew the stories of the old goddess Ishtar, of the descent into the underworld, of the sex and the power and the violence she incited, and he knew how each year during her rites, his mother would pace and drink and fill with a simmering rage for the three days of his father's absence how Druella and Lucretia would visit, how they would spend long hours hissing and spitting about whores and the foulness of men, Sirius sitting on the stairs beneath the rows of house-elf heads, listening, but far from understanding. So he had stuffed the invitation in his pocket and run upstairs, ignoring the many questions from his friends and the shocked cries of onlookers. He had returned to Grimald Place that evening, and his father had ordered that they adorn themselves in their most lavish of black wizarding robes, with high white collars and hundreds of silk-covered buttons in long, elegant rows, shoes so highly polished that Sirius could see the reflection of the flickering flames of the fire in them, topped with his fanciest of dress socks, with lace cuffs folded over across his ankles. His hands were in white gloves, cufflinks upon his wrists, and his hair tied back, spelled slick and severe. They spoke to each other in French, and his mother refused to look at him at all. Before the fire in the sitting room, his father had passed him a strip of sky-blue silk to tie about his neck, an eight-pointed silver star gleaming from it. He, too, tied a similar pendant about his own neck, the rarest hint of a smile playing at his cleanly shaven cheeks, that had so recently been so intimate with the blade of a razor. His aftershave was strong and bitter, and Sirius felt so strange to stand beside him, as if this was someone new, someone different from his father, so often dull and proper and disinterested in the world around him. No, this man was sharp and hungry, and Sirius thought he recognized that change, and somehow it was familiar, like the start of a match, like the start of the hunt. But he hadn't had much time to think of it before the port key had glowed blue and they were pulled through the crushing darkness between space. His father had told him that this was a place for the men of the Sacred 28, 
or at least a sympathetic subset of them, to come and talk business, discuss politics, wield their power and influence as one, plan for the coming year. He had said it was a time and a place for bonding and connecting to the renewal that comes with spring, the uniting of old ties, a binding, an entwining, an homage to the old gods as a brotherhood of men. And done that they had. The 43 attendees that year had all gathered and sat themselves at a seemingly endless dining table, from Herbert Bolstrode to Gibbon Yaxley, the elderly Eugene Slunghorn with his liver spots and his halitosis, to the youngest attendees, the Yaxley brothers, Corbin and Cadmus, and Sirius himself. At the far end of the table, Lucius Malfoy, violently blonde and sneering, sat beside his father, Abraxas, just across from Weimark and Basil Selwyn, the latter of whom had managed to spill the French onion soup all down his front, half-blind and feeble as he was. Sirius sat beside his father, with Everett and Jude Parkinson on his left, both of whom had a gleeful nervousness about them that Sirius found unsettling, and who had spent much of dinner sharing whispered mutterings with Marcellus and Cassius Greengrass, who had both ordered their steaks rare and wolfed them down rapaciously, conversation punctuated with rather bloody smiles. What his father and his uncles had failed to mention was that while it was true that Ishtar signified the strengthening of old pureblood business ties, and they had sat for hours to discuss many tedious and nefarious things, which was much the same to many of the summer dinners and fundraising balls he'd been forced to attend. They also had come to honor Ishtar's other infamous creeds. Sacred couplings offered divined blessings, or so tradition said, and for that reason the manor house on which they had all descended was filled to the brim with gala, worshippers who offered their bodies in exchange for gold and the fondness of Ishtar. That's what his father had said, under many nods from his grandfather Arcturus, great-uncle Pollux, and uncle Cygnus, and, yes, all of them after dinner in the smoking room with beautiful women draped about their greedy, unrepentant forms, Pollux dipping a gold galleon into the mouth of one such blonde beauty, who sucked it eagerly, cheeks hollowed. A woman with long black hair and light blue eyes came crawling across the floor to Sirius. She was naked, as all the gala were, and her eyes were soft and unfocused, blue as the wide, deep sea. She crawled to him, heels of her palms soft on the plush carpeting of the sitting room, and kneeled before the rounded leather chair in which he sat. Conversation drifted in and out of focus. He watched her lips and the sway of her breasts as she crawled. Reese, old boy, you can't be serious. How can you tell me that the Wizengamot would pass something so ludicrous? It's a scandal. The speaker was a middle-aged man, pockmarked with ruddy cheeks and deep-set eyes beneath a thick brow. In one hand, he held the wooden pipe, capped in decorative silver plates that produced thick, idle smoke tinged blue that drifted about the room and seemed to slow time. In his lap sat another gala, perhaps twenty years his junior, stunningly beautiful and equally as vacant-looking, she ran lazy fingers through his hair as he carried on. Sirius's eyes wouldn't stray long from the woman before him, who had stopped crawling to sit, 
bare ass against her bare feet, tucked beneath her. She reached up to run her palms up and down his thighs, her nails catching occasionally on the lush fabric of his robes. The silver star around his neck glittered in the soft light of the fire, which crackled easily, nearly lazily, on the far side of the sitting room. Now, now, Mortimer, don't get yourself too worked up over the ministry. We've developed several shadow committees to head off the muggle rights activists under the guise of preservation of wizarding culture. It's nothing to worry your head about. No one is coming for the Lestrange family vault, not this century anyway. The answering voice was from a man who laughed and reached across the arm of the sofa to playfully smack at the naked ass of a gala walking by, her arms laden with a tray of strong drinks. Sirius had been introduced to him earlier over dinner. Vaguely, somewhere in his memory, Sirius recalled this man, Reese Fawley, was the youngest ever recruit to the Unspeakables, poached from his first year at the ministry, just after he'd published a widely acclaimed article in Transfiguration Today. Something about the properties of antimatter. Reese Fawley watched her as she walked away. He was classically good-looking, all wide smile and perfectly straight teeth, blonde hair and a strong jawline. His voice was smooth and arrogant, and Sirius both disliked and was fascinated by him, but his limbs were strangely heavy and he lacked the motivation to draw attention to himself, so he turned his gaze back to the gala on her knees before him. She was kissing the soft black fabric of his robes, the folds that lay draped between his thighs. It was shortly after this, on the first night of Ishtar, that Sirius had been sent up to bed. His father running idle fingers through galleons in his pockets, their soft tinkling sound decadent and distractingly audible. Laying awake on soft white sheets, Sirius felt as though the earth had shifted fundamentally. The ground felt uneven and unstable, as if all of the careful considered rules he'd always been taught were the cinches to the world of pure-blood society were not absolute. They were just as much of a facade as he had always imagined. For now, in the confines of their ritual, they were breaking all of the customs of polite society. Yes, they were even bending the most cardinal of rules, that muggles were dirty, beastly things. Yet here they were, their flesh on display, their delicate beauty undeniable, recognized and relished, feasted upon. And 43 men of the most scrupulous pedigrees disrobed themselves for the pleasures of muggle women, soft and supple and unyielding. Suddenly everything felt unreal, but at the same time so incredibly real. And the irony, the hypocrisy of the whole thing, it was a strong and bitter taste like the many drinks that had eased so many throats. Sirius had never seen a naked woman in the flesh before the dinner service on the evening of his arrival, and he thought about her and all the others laying in bed that night. She had walked in, long and lean and effortless swathes of unblemished skin, her hips and breasts and thighs all soft and just a bit tremulous with the swaying motion of her walk, two long French braids draping down past her shoulders. Sirius had only ever seen nakedness in art, 
oil paintings by the great European masters and the Greeks, some Romans, women with pink skin and pink nipples, nearly indiscernible, women with cherub-like rolls or tall and slender and still so statuesque somehow, as if they were really just marble beneath the rouge. But these women, these women were so very real. They had thickets of dark hair between their legs or soft blonde curls in the valley of their hips. Their nipples were large, soft and dark or wrinkled and pert, breasts unequal in size and stomachs painted in incandescent markings, some of which seemed to shimmer in the half-light of the manor as the sun went down, shivers of flesh that flickered with the same effervescent beauty of the eight-pointed stars that adorned their clothed necks, women who rippled with the impact of their flesh. Some had thick thighs that moved together as they walked, and others seemed to teeter on the spindles that were their narrow legs. Some had great hips and asses that were rounded and dimpled and full, the slits between their legs hidden amongst the folds of flesh. He dreamt of sex that first night, amorphous and intangible sounds, groaning and panting and the very real sounds of flesh slapping against flesh. On the second night, no one chased Sirius off to bed. He was there in the library, midway through a discussion of Wandelore with Gervais Ollivander, when the oldest attendee, a shrunken man with a carved ebony cane, decried the lack of visible cunt and demanded the festivities begin in earnest, as he was growing tired of the political scheming and simply too old to waste time with power games. Cantankerous knot was like that, wrinkled and shriveled and mean. He had demanded four of the youngest girls take him to his quarters, remarking loudly on their anatomy, his veins, hands, unencumbered across their flesh. Sirius's eyes had followed a gala with beautiful golden curls that swung down her back as she served the men small crystal goblets of floral green liqueur, accompanying sugar cubes and dainty spoons, handles carved with the vicious faces of the fae. Another gala trailed behind her, her skin soft and dark and decadent, delivering little carafes of water, her cheeks so charmingly pulled by matching dimples. Across from Sirius, Silas and Herbert Burke had let the water drip into their drinks, pausing every few drops to sniff at the liqueur, which became thick and cloudy and nearly neon in its hue. Rodolphus and Rabastin, Mortimer Lestrange's nearly adult sons, were quick to smirk to one another and rise from their shared chaise lounge, downing their drinks and leaving crystal goblets on the side tables. Sirius watched Rodolphus grab the gala with the golden curls by the hair and drag her backwards out of the hall, the silver tray falling from her hands. Their laughing, jeering, and the slaps of her bare feet on the marble floor carried, and Mortimer laughed heartily, wooden pipe ensconced so comfortably in the corner of his slack mouth. Boys will be boys, it seems. His dark eyes had crinkled with laughter, and it was echoed around the room from the others, little green goblets clinking together as somewhere a gramophone played Debussy. And so, as the sun sank low below the horizon in the time-dilated evenings of the manor, 
The drinks and pipes were plentiful, and the house slowly devolved into lecherous debauchery, couplings and triads and groups of men with their hungry breaths, and gala with their softness and their vacantness, so malleable in their rough hands. It wasn't long after Sirius accepted his third goblet of the green drink that Nicobar Caro unfastened his robes and pushed the head of a passing gala down so that her cheek lay flat against a little antique side table. Floral patterns carved up its artfully bowed legs. His other hand lay flat across her other cheek, her lips and eyes distorted and pulled beneath the press of his palm. Sirius, frozen in shock and unrepentant disbelief, watched as Nicobar's cock slipped between her legs and they both cried out, her in pain and him in heady triumph. Beckett Rosier raised his own glass from across the room to give a drunken cheers, Nick, before pulling a pretty brunette woman aside, his fingers quick to slip between her legs as his lips met hers. Cheers echoed around the room, and Oberon Rahl whistled then laughed, deep and hearty and carefree. Sirius watched as Nicobar Carroll fucked her over the table, his hand moving from her cheek to grab her long, wavy, dark hair, his thrusting rapid and chaotic, his bare hips and large bellies slapping against the flesh of her thighs and ass, her face in a grimace, her eyes closed tight, his so hungry and vacant, flushed and sweaty. He was there to see the way his body shuddered as he pulled away, his hand pulling at his cock in several desperate strokes as he groaned, thick white strands of fluid falling against her dark skin, just so pearlescent in the firelight. Sirius watched still as Nicobar Caro caught his breath, tucking his still-leaking cock back beneath his robes and mopping his brow with a dainty handkerchief from the pocket of his waistcoat beneath. He watched as he lay a gleaming golden galleon on the table beside the woman, who was breathing heavily, who had not yet stood to her full height, who, Sirius could see, was trembling, the little table with the floral carved legs supporting her weight. Her arms tucked about her naked breasts. Her skin seemed to shimmer with the same golden hue as the coin beside her, as the semen now drying on her naked ass. Oberon Rahl had joined Beckett Rosier in groping the pretty brunette, and she was disappearing between their greedy hands and mouths, swallowed up in their covetous attentions. And Sirius watched as Nicobar Carroll laughed as he passed Rahl and Rosier, then nodding to Hervais Ollivander as he grabbed a crystal goblet from the tray held aloft by yet another passing gala, and sat himself down on the chaise across from Sirius drinking heavily from the etched glass, as if nothing out of the ordinary had transpired at all. Can't afford to finish in them, not at my age anyway. Who knows how many brass I've got running around from all the years of letting Gala milk me dry. I must have fucked all the muggles and whales by now. He smacked his lips and lay back, arms spread wide across the back of the chaise. What are you looking at, boy? Nicobar had turned his attention to Sirius, who promptly closed his gaping mouth and sipped at his own drink of deepest green. It was his third goblet, but the liqueur still burned his throat, and he had to hold his tongue tight against the roof of his mouth, not to cough and sputter as it went down. In the corner, the brunette made a quickly stifled squeal 
and Raoul's laugh rippled about the room again. Sirius felt as though he had swallowed ice. Oh, you're Orion's boy, aren't you? That shameful Gryffindor he's been whinging about. Nicobar sighed deeply, an ugly smile on his reddened face. First Ishtar, is it? No wonder you look like you've had a right shock. Don't worry, boy, you'll have your turn tomorrow night. All new inductees get a gala to themselves at moonrise of the third day. You'll have your chance to fuck one of those heathens properly. Sirius swallowed down more of his drink and listened to his heart pounding in his chest. He could hear more rhythmic sounds as Razier fucked the brunette's throat. Gervais, his hollowed face on Sirius's now, chuckled. And if you can fuck half as well as Orion, proper it will be. God's what I'd give to have a cock like that. The thickness of it, Nicobar, it's a shame us mere mortals weren't so blessed. Gervais was palming himself through his robes, and it was clear he was hard already. His hungry eyes sweeping the room and the many gala who wandered between men, serving and bending to wayward hands, grasping fingers. Sirius felt the burn of bile rising from his gut. Please excuse me, Mr. Caro, Mr. Ollivander. He nodded to the two men, who were now making to share a newly sparked opium pipe between them, as Gervais Ollivander undid his robes for the auburn-haired woman whom he had beckoned to and was now kneeling between his feet. They didn't seem to notice Sirius leave. Across the room, the galleon was gone from the table. Sirius ducked beyond the heavy wooden door to the library, gasping and reaching up to undo the top buttons of his stuffy robes. He stumbled into the entrance hall with its grand staircase, wide and resplendent, only realizing after several long moments that it was occupied by the spindly frame of Harfang Longbottom, whose bare ass was pumping rhythmically between the spread thighs of a woman draped across the stairs, her breasts spread awkwardly on either side of her chest, large and pendulous as they were. Her eyes were half open, and her hands were limp and pliant as Harfang slid his cock relentlessly between her legs. The grand room seemed to spin around him, and Sirius was reluctant to catch glimpses of the portraits along the walls, making lewd gestures and remarks, hands shoved beneath their own fastidious dress robes. Or maybe he imagined it, for on second look there were many blank canvases or empty chairs in gilded frames, his vision hazy, his limbs so heavy. Sirius turned quickly, too quickly, as his stomach heaved in protest. From the stairs, and he made his way back across the paneled dining room with its endless oak table and whose door was closed. He thought it might offer respite from the nauseating scenes before him. Old men, wizards, forcing themselves and their bodies on the softest, most beautiful of young women, dazed and glassy-eyed, and so placid, so vacant, so bereft of their humanness, as naked and bared as they were. It was disgusting, disgusting, horrific, yet tantalizing in a way forbidden things always were, in the way sex and love and the touch of another was powerful and invigorating, forbidden and so interesting, so difficult to watch, yet so difficult to look away from. The door to the dining room swung inward, and Sirius didn't make it past the threshold, for there, spread across the table, was a woman, Grayson Macmillan's face between her legs, arms clasped about her spread thighs, 
another woman pouring red wine across the first trembling stomach, so it ran rivulets down her pale skin. Sirius turned from the room, his heart pounding in his ears, sounds of rushing blood loud with the sounds of sex, wet sounds of flesh and fluids, and the sounds of men as they came. Harfang did not look around as Sirius darted back across the grand hall, and nor did the woman beneath him, if she was conscious and capable of such things. Sirius ducked into the guest washroom, his ears ringing with continued sounds, loud and disarticulated, peppered with laughter and the voices of women, solicitous and free. Voices that had not come from the throats of the gala, voices that could not have come from them, as captivated by such brutal magic as they were. Sirius felt his stomach lurch, and he threw up into the porcelain sink, his hands shaking on the gilded taps, gold like the galleons. The laughter in his ears grew louder, and the women's voices taunted him. His face in the mirror was pale and sweaty, and he wiped his sleeve across his brow, his hair coming free from the slicked ponytail that lay across his spine. He looked young, too young for this, too young for the exploits of these men, who preached purity in the public, yet came to this isolated manor house in Wales to adorn themselves in the filth of the world, to lick the secretive folds of pink flesh between the thighs of muggles, to father children with them, all it seems without their knowing. Sirius vomited into the sink again, green and frothy and pungent with the smells of so many blessed herbs, crushed by holy men, pious and monastic. What irony. Sirius closed his eyes and breathed slowly against the nausea and the loudness in his ears, the laughing dying away to be replaced by the soft voice of another disembodied woman, which licked and danced about his ears. Run free, she said softly, carelessly. Run free, little Master Black. You're not one of them. Run free. And so he did. He left the washroom, stopping only at the sight of Harfang, both hands around the woman's neck, yelling at the top of his voice for her to take his seed. But then Sirius was whipping around and making a run for the front door, his heavy legs impeding him only slightly, tripping through the front entryway as the woman's voice whispered for him to run, out into the free air, out into the night. So he did. He ran out across the great lawns and down, down into the orchard, leaves just budding from fruit trees and long rows, boughs tended and trained in artful arches toward the sky. And only once beneath the carefully sculpted trees did Sirius sink to the ground, back against the spindly trunk of a Denby plum, leaves just beginning to bud from the spring-warmed stems. He felt nauseous still, disgusted, confused. He felt heavy. He reached up and unbuttoned more of the tedious little satin buttons that had so elegantly held him together within the manor. Under the gaze of so many powerful people, powerful and hungry, eyes so sharp, so quick to spot weakness, to find prey. Sirius breathed heavily and let the cool air of the orchard strip away the heat that radiated from his bare skin, his face, his throat, his wrists. His mind raced, then slowed, thoughts tumbling ungainly and ill-formed, swept away in the cooling draft of the orchard breeze. He sat there until the women's voices died away on the spring wind from the east, and the light of the moon no longer held an eerie green tinge, high and far away in the sky as it was.
far away, like Remus, like Hogwarts, like the world he had felt so safe and secure in, a world where he had built friendships, a world of routine, a world where the rules weren't so heady and confusing, so fraught with so many sinister things, where breaking them didn't feel like breaking his own grasp of humanity, of right and wrong, where he was just a boy, one of many, a boy finding his own way, a boy who'd never seen a naked woman, let alone born witness to sex, just there in front of him, with all of the sounds and the lewdness of it, the realness, the smell even, like sweat and sweetness of bodies, of breath. Sex, that was another confusing thing. It reminded him of Quidditch, though he couldn't really understand why. The closeness of bodies, maybe? The quickening of his pulse, the hunger he felt, the thrill of the violence of it? Maybe it was the same, maybe it was something similar. It made his skin feel tight, it made his mouth thick and his thoughts heavy, and his balls had a particular kind of ache that was distracting and unsettling, much like the words of Nicobar Caro back in the thick smoke that lay about the library. Words that had come back to Sirius after he'd let himself become cool and soft and less terrified in the glittering light of the stars and the moon, among the soft grass and the trees that let him feel so much more at home, eight-pointed stars still sharp and brilliant on his chest. Words about the last night of Ishtar. Words about proving himself, proving he belonged. Did he belong? All his life he had made an effort to belong, to be well-behaved, to be polite and courteous, and to follow all of their ridiculous rules. To present himself well, to be a black, noble and ancient, and heir to their house, heir to their power and their legacy. He dressed himself in their custom, and he bowed low as he greeted his elders in French. He spent every Yule at Baudelaire, his waltz and repartee equally as appropriate, delicate and sharp. He attended the summer events sporadic and less grand than the winters in France, though far more conventional in the way in which he had to foxtrot and then twirl about the maypole, a green grass or a burke on his arm, pretending to be so modern and reformed. He did all of these things because he had never known a world where he was allowed to not do them. A world where his mother would not drag him from the flue and beat him bloody for his missteps, for errant comments, for threats to the power and the influence of the House of Black. A world where his father did not sneer at him as though he regretted his very existence, as if his son were nothing to him, nothing but a bore, nothing but a burden, an embarrassing, worthless thing, and how much worse it had been that first year after he had been sorted into Gryffindor, though he had come home those holidays knowing so keenly, so fiercely, how critical it would be to behave, to prove his worth, to prove his value, so that they would not hurt him, hurt him more than they had, that is. And it had improved somewhat, as Sirius was quiet and well-disciplined in the way that he had been taught, in the ways he had been folded and formed and beaten to be. It had been easier with Hogwarts and his future, even just the idea that somewhere he had respite, a place to return to, friends, a rebellion of his own making, a place where he could live as himself. That had given him strength, resilience that he had never thought he would muster. It had carried him through the holidays away from the castle. It had kept him quiet and demure.
It had kept him well-behaved enough that their shame of his house allocation had faded, had ebbed and subsided and allowed his father to think that he was ready for Ishtar, for fealty and fidelity to the brotherhood of pure-blood men, to be inducted between them, to share in their salacious secrets and their rituals. Had faded enough for his father to stop, just before they stepped into the green flames of the flu, to tell his son that he was going to be so proud that he was his son. Proud, a word that had roared through his blood like fiend fire, set him alight, alive. A word that made him forget all of the nasty, brutal things. All of the bigotry and the beatings. A word that made him hopeful. A word that felt like maybe it could be love. And maybe he was like them after all. Longbottom was a Gryffindor, Frank has said his whole family was, and surely that included one of his less scrupulous uncles who still worshipped in the old ways. Maybe he wasn't that different. Maybe it didn't matter. Maybe thinking that being sorted into a different house made him different was a naive and childish thing. Maybe it wasn't all that meaningful after all. Sirius watched the moon, waning now, falling in the second half of the night sky, his yuan tucked up into his swept-up hair. Sirius pulled his hair back from his face and slipped the eight-pointed star on its blue silk ribbon from around his neck, handing it across to his father, who sat, not proper and rigid like all the times before, but half-slumped, lounging against the black leather of the carriage seat, a tobacco pipe slack against his bottom lip, filling the small space with its soft smell after gentle and seemingly thoughtful puffs. Sirius's robes were half undone still, so many satin buttons loose and his high collar disheveled, his trousers creased and crinkled in ways that would have made his mother sputter and fume in disgust. The carriage rocked and rolled along, the steady thrumming of well-shod hooves on the cobbled lane that led away from the manor, behind swaying black backs and red ribbons of percherons and the creaking of leather, so much softer and less threatening than the years before, suddenly so much less dramatic, less frightening. But then again, obedience was less frightening, less weighty, less suffocating somehow. It had its perks, after all, it seemed, and he had survived long enough to see them. Sirius glanced out the window and watched the Welsh countryside fall away. He watched the rolling hills and haphazard stone walls dissolve, and with it the sounds and smells and unreality of the preceding days. Everything seemed softer, more muted, as they trundled away from the rising moon on the third night of Ishtar, away from the rites. It seemed as though that morning was ages, decades, lifetimes ago, when he had startled awake with a spinning head and a roiling, burning pain in his stomach, still curled beneath the plum tree, an imposter between the more gnarled boughs of the apple orchard. Yes, perhaps it was a lifetime ago, a different life, when Sirius had stumbled his way back up to the manor, up to the small bedrooms in the quiet, paneled halls of the upstairs where he had seen Gala, men and women alike, slipping from the sleeping quarters of so many others. A tall Gala with dark hair and bright amber eyes had caught Sirius's stare, and Sirius had felt a flush of color rise in his cheeks 
as his gaze lingered on the man's body, and his thoughts stuttered on how strange and warm and flustered it made him feel, so much more so than the myriad of beautiful women had, with their softness and their curves. No, this gala was sharp and angular and enticing in ways he hadn't expected, hadn't noticed, hadn't let himself discover. But the moment only lasted an instant, and Sirius was slipping back into his room, discarding his crumpled robes for a house elf to clean and drawing the soft white sheets around him, desperate for a few more hours sleep and a respite from the nervousness that had begun to pile up around him, heavy and insistent on his skin. That afternoon he had been summoned for the initiation rites, which had started with their donning of cloaks of sky blue and chanting old magic to the old gods, piling gold galleons and swearing bonds of fealty. Sirius had let the incantations wash over him, had held aloft his wand of yew and chanted, rhythmic and soothing, somehow familiar. He had let himself tread circles of magic, weaving between candles that dripped black wax onto the old oaken floorboards, cloaks swishing and magic spinning. He had done all of these things, and he tried hard not to think too much about what it all meant, about what his fealty meant to Ishtar and to blood. He stood with his elders, his father's hand on one shoulder, Pollux and Cygnus behind him. Around them, other families assembled, sky blue and pure, faces tired and satisfied, worn out with the revelry of the nights before. It had been an hour after the sun fell that the moon rose, and Sirius was given a gold galleon by his father to place in the mouth of a gala of his choosing. All of them, men and women alike, kneeling with lips parted, expectant, ready for the inductees to take their pick, his father squeezing his shoulder and giving him a rare, captivating grin. He and Cadmus and Corbin, the two Yaxley brothers, were the only boys in attendance, the only ones to be enfolded into the ritual that was the worship of Ishtar, a bond that stretched back centuries. Cadmus, the younger of the two, a Ravenclaw in the year above Sirius, had shuddered at the placement of his galleon against his palm by his father, Gibbon Yaxley, and the elder man had leaned down to the young boy's ear, his whisper harsh but carrying, Don't you dare embarrass me, you little brat. Fuck her properly and make me proud. Make your name proud. Dishonor your blood, and I'll punish you by bleeding you dry of it. Go, make yourself a man. Corbin, so much more haughty than his brother, had taken his galleon with a sure smirk, already unbuttoning the high, tight collar of his shirt beneath the sky-blue cloak, which had his father laughing deeply in approval, clapping the boy on his shoulder. Sirius had chosen a woman with skin that was smooth and dark and reminded him of James, and her smile was similarly jaunty, kind, hopefully forgiving. Her hair was curled in tight ringlets, some of which hung across her pretty face. Her eyes, like so many of the others, were so curiously blank. He had put the galleon in her mouth and watched her cheeks pull inward, standing to take his hand and lead him to an adjoining room, his choice leading to loud jeers and applause from the circle of men at his back, 
Corbin and Cadmus similarly goaded. We'll go straight back to Hogwarts, I think, my son. Best to avoid your mother in the days after Ishtar, and I can imagine how she'd punish us both for your induction. Sirius snapped back from his recollection, nodding to his father, feeling the corner of his mouth twitch upward at the endearment. My son. How he'd spent all of his formative years so eager to hear something so simple, so common. As Sirius turned back to the window, he recognized the sleepy shops and the dark high street of Hogsmeade, the road sloping gently upwards to the gates, pillars topped with such familiar winged boars. How could such a short time have passed and everything have changed so much? Sirius folded his dark traveling cloak over his arm, the castle looming closer as they rolled up the drive. Thank you, father, he said, and the air wasn't stiff and formal between them, for the tired smile he received was sly and warm and so unlike the man who had raised him, who had formed him until this moment. Go on, then. Be a man of Ishtar now. Sirius grinned and tried not to think of how the woman with her soft curls and her dark skin had made him feel. The crack of the whip sounded as the callish rolled back down the drive, the percherons in perfect tandem, necks flexed and bowed low as they pulled the carriage back into the night. When Sirius slipped into the common room of the Gryffindor dormitory, it was half past two in the morning. The lamps were no longer lit, and the fire was burning low. He snapped his fingers for a house elf and handed over his traveling cloak for a thorough cleaning, and he did not see the form of a normally long and lanky figure curled up in the armchair beside the embers. He did not see him, and his soft voice cutting through the quiet of the night made him startle. For the love of Merlin, Sirius. Remus was standing from the chair, walking toward him slowly, eyes wide and searching. Lupin, you utter creep! What are you doing up at this hour, lurking about in the dark, waiting to scare me? Sirius laughed, loud and bright and wholly inappropriate in the softness of the common room at such an ungodly hour. Remus stopped several paces from him, nostrils flared and his eyes darting around his decidedly haphazard appearance, even lingering on the little lace cuffs of his dress socks. Sirius, you... What did you do? What do you mean, what did I do? I was away for Easter holidays like everybody else, you barmy fool. Sirius tried to put on his winning smile and the jovality that so often carried him through secrets he wanted to keep. He cuffed Lupin across the shoulder and went to climb the staircase to his dormitory, his dress shoes making unnaturally loud clicks on each stair, and his back prickling with drops of sweat. It felt as though two worlds were colliding, two versions of himself, two universes with different rules, now muddied and muddled somewhere uncomfortably in the middle. He felt as though Lupin had caught him doing something wrong, something bad and dirty, something he should feel guilty for. Should he feel guilty? Sirius grabbed a t-shirt, the Weird Sisters, one of James's, and a pair of normal shorts and headed straight for the showers. His hand shook only a little as he worked to undo the rest of the little satin buttons, the ones that had held him together so fastidiously. He showered under piping hot water 
and scrubbed at his skin over and over, unsure of why he felt like he couldn't get properly clean. decide if I want to ask you serious questions first or if I want to talk about completely unrelated subject matter to break up the tension. I honestly don't care. Okay. You want. Well, let's just get into it. Okay. <laughs> Look on your face. <laughs> says so many things. Do you want to explain? So like two chapters ago you mentioned that you wanted to get into this like culture of power this very specific world that like creates mm. these very weird sub societies and cultures do you want to talk about that well it's kind of a huge door to open and i i think that you like blasted wide open with this chapter yeah, yeah i, <laughs> with, I like did. a fucking cannon i did i mean it's partly because to to talk about okay when you think about small groups of people mm. that gain incredible amounts of power historically and in my understanding of human behavior mm-hmm. they are an ex- usually an extraordinarily like corrupting influence and oftentimes are used as this sort of place of safety to enact all of the sort of like baser human instincts around power, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like, people become incredibly powerful, and then they're in a powerful group of people, and they're Mm. basically untouchable. And then, especially men, when they get together with all of this immense amounts of power and safety, they pretty much look at each other and go, we can get away with anything. Mm -hmm. And that sort of snowballs generally into these very... um, Debaucherous rituals. (laughs) Or just these spaces that cultivate this idea that, you know, nothing is taboo. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the... Nothing is sacred. Like, nothing is sacred but the safety of the group. Mm. And and that means that they can literally do anything. Mm. And so all of these behaviors associated with immense power over others start coming to the forefront. Like, why rape is so common. Mm. When you think about these groups of people who get together who have power and impunity and and you know the law is obviously not going to come close to touching them yeah. so given that much power and control what do they do with it mm. they engage in in sort of these like baser instinct behaviors mm. like sex um drugs you know all of these sort of what the rest of society is going to consider taboo mm. bad behaviors so I thought about that, and then I thought about the Sacred 28 mm. and the world that Sirius's parents belong to, yeah. and how that world that they belong to is obviously a very, very old, mm. um, even though the Sacred 28 list is only made in the 1920s or whatever, mm. 
oftentimes when groups are made like that, they start drawing on traditions that are older to yeah. give themselves more clout yeah. and to give themselves an air mm. of, you know, we've been doing this since the beginning of time. This is the way it's done. It's yeah. untouchable traditions. You can't yeah. question it. Mm. All of these are like bred into the formation of the group to make it exist the way it exists. Yeah. I mean, and you could actually say the exact same things about a lot of like fraternities. Yeah. I was just thinking about fraternities. Like, yeah. That's just all this feels like using like the Greek letters and all of these like weird old quote unquote old traditions, mm. but are actually like super new. Mm. And you know, you just give them an air of authority by saying mm. they're old. Basically. It kind of reminds me of like, um, this like newer aged white supremacy happening in the world, trying to draw on like Norse mythology to oh, like, totally. validate totally. their like quote unquote traditions. That's like, a great very example. inappropriately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's what I think a lot of people, they, they misinterpret old cultural traditions to suit their needs yeah. and then say, look, our ancestors did it. Yeah. That's a very common part of the methodology of trying to mm-hmm. consolidate and keep power and validate the power mm-hmm. that they think they have. Mm hmm. So yeah, I thought about that a lot, um, sort of trying to write this other world mm. that Sirius gets put into. Mm. And, and I, I think it's really interesting because this clearly informs, like if this is something his dad has been participating in, his mom clearly knows that it exists. And mm-hmm. I mean, he's only just now getting exposed to it and what it actually is. It like really shines a light on the kind of person that he's being raised by. Yeah, completely, but also the the fact that there are two versions of his dad now. Yeah. I mean, his father is, at the same time, this, like, bored aristocrat, mm. but also this, like, you know... Sadist. Yeah, like, completely hedonistic, mm. you know, other version that enjoys basically the rape of women. Mm. Or whatever else he does at Ishtar. I don't really get into it because... Mm. But <laughs> that was that was already enough to to yeah. digest. Yeah. Um, but I I wanted to give the impression that you know. Given the opportunity to do anything, people do anything. Yeah, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Mm. Um, and I made the decision also almost immediately that it would be all men, mm. because you actually don't really see women engage in things like this they actually don't i think women have too much empathy for the for the people they're perpetuating violence on yeah usually Usually. i mean that doesn't always hold true so often you see women as pillars of um like you're talking about the new uh white supremacist Mm -hmm. groups i mean women have been holding those groups up and are the foundation of a lot of those groups but they're usually behind the scenes yeah. as individual support of the men involved. Mm, definitely. And they do it out of like dedication to their husband mm. or, you know, the sense of like family security. Yeah. And it's through a different lens than mm-hmm. more individual. Or that's just how it generally mm. it has been historically. Yeah. I think if the I mean, power there's always outliers, but yeah. Of course, yeah. I think if the power dynamics were different, if if you talk about, you know, if we lived in societies where women had more power over others Mm. we would see a reverse in this you know it's just i think i think fundamentally so many men are not given opportunities to build empathy yeah um, as young people and then as adults as well Mm -hmm. and that creates a space for 
heinous crimes to be committed. <laughs> yeah. For the dehumanization of others yeah. very easily. Mm. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think then in order to address that, you have to work towards the humanization of others, mm. which it's like very stupid fighting this uphill battle when all children should sort of like baseline be introduced to the idea of like humanity and humanness mm. is diverse. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, all human beings feel things like grief and sorrow mm. and pain. Mm. And, you know, that's a universal human experience. Yeah. And you should be able to look at someone experiencing that and say, how horrible I wish they didn't have to. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's obviously absent from this, yeah, from this whole world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and they even talk about things like, they impregnate and have children. They don't give a fuck about those no. children. They're not claiming those children as theirs. Mm-hmm. Doesn't fucking matter. I yeah. wonder how many of them are actually um, magical mm. and then end up getting a letter at Hogwarts yeah. and then, you know. They're muggle-born. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're yeah. the muggle-borns who get into Hogwarts. But that, that um, doesn't... That kind of logic doesn't seem to touch this world no, because it's all. meaningless. I think what's interesting about this is it, there's a lot of similarities with like the the Christmas in bottle air, like yeah. the unrealness. Like yeah. you are you've literally stepped into a pocket dimension <laughs> that yeah. is unrelated to anything else. True. And, and Sirius is in it like, what the literal fuck? And and it's so confusing for him because he's stepped into these spaces so many times. He's gotten very accustomed mm. to stepping into these places and the rules of these mm. places. And yet here he is where all the rules are out the fucking window. Yeah. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> wait a fucking second. Everything you've told me for the rest of my life is meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. You've like, been lying this whole time. Cue downward spiral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not to mention, like, his age. He's, he's like, at the, the prime age for serious manipulation oh, and totally. coercion. And... Well, I thought about that, too. I thought, you know, what is the biggest sort of allure mm. to a 13-year-old boy? It's yeah. sex. Yeah. It's absolutely sex. That's, like, the start of the age where, like, puberty is, like, mm. about to be in full swing. Mm-hmm. Where 13-year-old boys... Like all they care about are like yeah. boobs. Yeah, and like, <laughs> and like even coming from Sirius, so like he grew up in this like really harsh home environment where there's like it's so devoid of like love, and then he's thrust into this group of people, and even though it's horrifying, it is like a community, and they're all like you're the, one of the us. The brotherhood. Now. Yeah. Yeah, and the idea we're of his... so proud of you for being one of us. Yeah, and his father calling him my son. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are very alluring, mm. very tempting, like very manipulative. Mm. things to throw at a 13 year old who has been abused his whole life Mm. and you know felt nothing but coldness from Mm. these people to finally be like you know they all accept him and you know you're part of the group now yeah you have a place here exactly we've inducted you Mm -hmm. as one of us yeah it's very it's weird because it wasn't difficult to write that Mm. it's it's very formulaic Mm. this is how groups like that function and it's replicated over and over again it's not a new concept it's not something you know you can dress it up in any way you like there's different traditions that all unite them together they all wear the same color they all have their eight pointed stars they all you know engage in magic together and then engage in debauchery together like it's all very i know like a few examples just ran through my mind of like 
again, going back to like white nationalist groups recruiting young yep. kids yep. who feel left out. Totally. And being able to like militarize them, child soldiers across the world. I mean, you yep. go for kids, loners on their own and give them a group of people they can quote unquote rely on. And then drugs or yeah. sex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, and like at that age too, like that exactly. specific I mean, puberty you can, age. You, it, yeah. I mean, you can say the exact same thing about fraternities as well. Mm. It's just a little bit older. Yeah. But how many... Um, younger brothers of you know dudes in fraternities went to go visit their brother and you know ended up sleeping with someone yeah. or ended up trying cocaine or yeah. you know got super wasted for the first time and yeah. you know all, all the dudes are now calling them the little brother or whatever mm-hmm. i mean it's the exact same process it's the exact yeah. same even like the military completely you know like they start like doing shows at schools that age yeah mm-hmm. yeah we're your family. Mm-hmm. Yep. So problematic. So fucked up. And it just becomes this like very enclosed space mm-hmm. for so much fuckery to happen mm-hmm. and so little accountability because yeah. it's so hard to stand up to the group, question the group, mm-hmm. create any kind of dialogue around if something mm-hmm. needs to be changed. Yeah. I mean, how often do those groups like that change in they their don't. methodology. They don't. So rarely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of those groups where it's not it's not unconditional love, you know what I mean? Like if oh, you question the group, they will they will all turn on you. Not- and I, and I think there's like that baseline understanding that even when you're in that group. Yeah, I actually thought about writing in a scene where he's like sworn to secrecy mm-hmm. or like but it's like quite implied. Takes a charm mm. or has a potion or whatever. Mm. Um, but it's actually not necessary. Mm-mm. I mean, the implication is that you will not speak about this. Mm. This is not yours to share with anyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wrote it so that, you know, like, no spoilers or whatever, but he doesn't. Mm. He doesn't well, I tell Remus. Ob- I think that's obvious when he sees Remus and he's like, ha ha ha, I'm going to go shower till I die. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah, like burn pretty... all my skin off. Yeah, exactly. I think that's. <laughs> Pretty and I don't know why. And was being like so obviously like, what the fuck happened? What is wrong with you? Even yeah. though there's like, you know, no obvious t- telling signs other than like Sirius's weight of like shame and guilt. Yeah. And the fact that he smells like bodies mm. and flesh and sex mm. and probably drugs also. Mm. And Remus and his like werewolfness yeah. is like, all of my red flags yeah. are up. There are so many red flags. I'm so scared. Oh God. <laughs> what happened? Jesus fuck. <laughs> Yeah. So that's Ishtar. Mm. It's a it's a very good chapter, like in terms of like the imagery and world building. Thanks. I find it very interesting. It's terrible. It's also super traumatizing. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. You know, warnings to people. <laughs> so brutal. I always wonder about like what people think who have been exposed to these worlds. Because like yeah, I mean, I've been exposed to a few of them. Mm. I wonder what people think, you know, who have... Let's say you've been a part of the military, or even police, or, mm. or a fraternity, or a secret society, or, mm. you know, even just a group that has been exclusive and secret and, mm. and you know, untouchable. Yeah. And I wonder what people th- will think listening to something like this 
and thinking about their own involvement in those spaces mm-hmm. and you know what kind of price do you pay to be involved in that yeah. in terms of your own humanity mm-hmm. or your own you know sense of guilt or morality yeah. or your own ability to face mm-hmm. the world and like how do you come to terms with that do you eventually fight against that and leave the group mm-hmm. do you make a stand do you try and impart change do you just peace out one day and disappear like mm-hmm. you know how do you come to terms with that what kind of loyalty do you feel what kind of fealty do you feel mm. you know as an older person do you give money do you still remain going to alumni groups yeah. do you you know do all of these things that are in essence just sort of scams to perpetuate the group that aren't yeah. really about you you yeah. know Definitely. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah. I do wonder. It's fascinating. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was the demon horse birds. Oh, just tell that story. I'm very sick of talking. We need to explain that. So at the end of the last episode, we abruptly We don't have an explanation. Okay, no, that's... Okay, yeah, I'm getting there. But I just... just, It is... It's a thing, right? We weren't just being weird and dramatic. No, it's a definite thing. It's a thing, right? It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So, um... Or so we we keep telling ourselves. No, 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 but but we also called them demon horse birds before you ever read Harry Potter. Yeah, they've been demon horse birds since the first time I heard them. So, anyways, for five years now, every winter... six years. Five and a half, we've only been here. Okay, whatever. At this house. Okay. Yeah. So, um... Since we moved into this house, this is our fifth winter here, and since the first winter, we, from after sunset, so like when it's just dark enough to not be able to make shit out, right? Mm -hmm. So like that time of day, only in winter, we began hearing this very weird noise, and it was like beating wings and it, no, no, no. it wasn't even beating wings at first. It's like whinnying. Yeah. It sounds like, it a, sounds a, like horse a horse whinnying, whinnying, but flying through the air at high speeds right past your fucking head. But we cannot see what it is. You can never see them. We can never see they them. Are, you can see shadows of them. Like, but we can't the, figure the out the size, the yeah. general shape. We don't know if it's a bird. We don't know if it's a bat. We don't know if it's a fucking flying mushroom. We have no clue what this is. We've asked multiple... Yes, multiple experts, animal experts in their field describing what we've heard. I've even had video recordings of the sound and I've been trying to identify this fucking animal. I'm assuming it's an animal because what else would it be? Um, I think it's a migratory bat species. Because it's only in winter. Well, it has to be migratory, whatever it is, because it's in winter. But I think it's a bat. Sure. But I have no, <laughs> I have no, no, I have no clue. Like yeah. I literally have absolutely no idea what this thing is. But they're quite big. Yeah, whatever they are. Sure, I'm assuming they're big. But because sometimes no, I can feel the wind past my head when they fly by. Yeah, but you can never see them. And it's just like such a particularly scary noise. Well, like I was very freaked out the first few times I heard it. It but, sounds like whinnying, but it could also be screaming. Yeah, I have no clue. <laughs> we, so we just call them the demon horse birds because they sound that's like exactly what they sound like. They sound like they're they're apocalyptic horses yeah. out of hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, demons are about to start crawling out of the ground coming after us. That's like exactly what it sounds like it heralds, like the apocalypse. Yeah, so we've we've been trying to figure this out for five years. We've asked multiple so experts. many people. Yeah. So many people. And we live in a very specific like biological 
like area. Yeah. Um, which I think makes it a bit tricky because I think it is quite particular, and we've asked experts like. But you know, even our, down the even country. our neighbors have oh, yeah. never heard. Even our neighbors don't even know what it is. Yeah. They're like, "What are you talking about?" They're like, "We've never heard that," and it's impossible not to hear it because <laughs> it is so loud, freaky as fuck. So we're like, I've woken up at three in the morning yeah. before, opened my door to be like, "Where are you?" Yeah. That's where, why, where are you? That's why yesterday <laughs> or whatever day it was. Yeah that we were doing the recording yeah. the previous episode, I was like, that's it, that's them, because we need to get a good recording of yeah. them, because yeah. all the recordings are on our old phones. Yeah, so we had to race outside and find demon horse birds. Which we didn't find. Which we did not find. So on goes the quest. Anyways, that's the story about the demon horse birds. So. Eventually we'll put a recording up. Yeah, if we can. For, yeah, If it. they're here this year. Sometimes they don't show up. Well, they didn't show up the year of the drought. We didn't get them. Oh, yeah, that's um, true. And then they finally came back. So, our resident demon horse birds that are only sometimes resident. I think they're some kind of huge fruit bat. I don't know why. I think fruit bats are very cute, but the thought of them flying that close to my head kind of freaks me out. Because <laughs> they come so close. You yeah, can they feel really close. the wind right by your head, and yeah. then they make that horrible screaming Winning. noise. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Yeah. So, Please leave me alone. So maybe whatever they, you are, maybe they are just thestrals. <laughs> we yeah. can't see them. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I never made the connection mm-hmm. to like the demon horse bird yeah. being a thestral yeah. or like being similar to a yeah. thestral ever until like this year. Yeah, until we finished writing Blood Magic, and then we were like, oh shit, <laughs> shit we kind of do have thestrals, yeah. maybe. Oh, whoops. Yeah, really <laughs> sorry, <funny. laughs> we forgot about you guys. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um, there was something else I wanted to talk about. It was Snape related. Now I can't remember what it is. Was it about his death? Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> that is what it was. That's what I wanted to talk about. Okay, <laughs> I can't remember go what. Go on. Okay, so I can't remember how this started, but I went off on a tangent earlier about Snape dying. Oh, it's because the poll on Facebook. Oh yeah, you did a poll. I'm terrible at responding to the Facebook. Um, so it just keeps falling on you to do weird things on the Facebook and then just like update me. So I get these like half second hand (laughs) accounts of what's going on. And, um, we were talking about, you asked whose death was most devastating Mm -hmm. and a bunch of people responded and a lot of people said Fred, Mm -hmm. like a lot of people are real fucked up about Fred. That's relatable. Yeah. That is so relatable. I really get it. And then somebody said Snape Mm -hmm. and then somebody said that they headcanoned what was the headcanon that they like would be prepared for any eventuality to try yeah. and escape death yeah and my immediate reaction to that was just like no man snape was looking for an out and he welcomed death <laughs> <laughs> this man had a miserable fucking life yeah and if you don't think he had like many stores of like antidotes in his bat cape <laughs> for like snake venom and just like decided not to use it because he was like oh fucking finally <laughs> i kind of imagine like instead of antidotes he yeah. had like the cyanide capsule yeah like, exactly he just had ready a cyanide just like out. ready like <laughs> i've had enough i've had a fucking enough thank god yeah just like come and get me death yeah. 
exactly. I, I'm done. I am ready for this. <laughs> like, like sure, he probably had a like a bazoir in his pocket and just like fucking threw it across the room. Like, no, I can't say bazoir <laughs> because most people haven't listened a to bizarre. the audio books. A bazoir. I just <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, the audiobook, the first audiobook, and Jim Dale says bazoir like very dramatically, and now I can't not say that because it's so funny. But he doesn't do it for any. No, it's books. just in the first book. He goes a bazoir. <laughs> And then it's a bezoar for the rest of them. But it's so funny to me. <laughs> so like, I wonder who could You have to him. yell it like like in that accent. Bezoar. <laughs> yeah. Like, very specifically. Yeah, somebody must have corrected him. <laughs> so funny. You can just say bezoar, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I re- I'm sad that he changed it, though, because it was very amusing. <laughs> what other things did he change the pronunciation of? Mm, I'm sure there's been a few things. Yeah. That's just like the most dramatic. Yeah. Mm. I love Jim Dale. Yeah. That's how I fall asleep every night. I know a lot of people really like the Stephen Fry books. Can't do it. And I, I can't do it. He doesn't do the voices like Jim Dale does, and I'm really attached to that. What's your favorite voice that he does? <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a great question. I'm like going through my... Like a Rolodex of information <laughs> in my head. Um, I really like Hermione's voice. That he really? Does, yeah, that he does for Hermione. Why? It's very funny. I think it's very in character for her. Uh, okay, any of them that you hate? Um, I don't know. Draco's is a bit irritating. <laughs> He goes out of his way to make him sound annoying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, that's in character. I know, I, the text does that all on its own. You <laughs> I don't know, have right? to add extra layers of irritating. He, that's just a, a proper interpretation oh, of the text. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like his Hagrid voice. Oh yeah, Hagrid's good. It's good. I think. Yeah. I can't really remember now that I'm... Oh my I, in my head, like... I keep getting confused with the actor's voices. Like, I love mm. the actor for Hagrid. Yeah. I think he's fabulous. Mm. Um, no, I like Jim Dale's Hagrid. It's really good. Yeah. His Voldemort voice is excellent. Really? Yeah, I like it. I am drawing a blank on all the voices. I've listened to those books. I literally so fall many asleep times, to them. Yeah. And all I can think <clears throat> is his narrator voice. Yeah. That's actually, like, when I think of their characters, even when I'm, like, reading fix, I read them in Jim Dale's voice. <laughs> like, well, that's because your very first introduction to the series was his voice. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But, I mean, I, I watched some of the movies before I read the books. But you hated them. Yeah, I did. And that was long ago. Yeah. I thought, I thought they made absolutely no sense. Which, even after re-watching them post-reading the books, I stand by that. They don't make any sense. <laughs> They're very <laughs> weird. Like, the way they cut things and... Yeah, I'm not a fan They're of not the co- They're not good coherent storytelling. Well, it's because they're all different directors. Yeah, well, that too. But even the script writing is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Bit of a scam. Do you think they'll remake... The movie series? I hope one day they do. You hope so. Hmm. Who do you imagine would play Harry and Draco? Mm, that's a great question. I hope when they recast it, they make Hermione black. Oh, they better, and yeah. Harry, like, Indian. I wish... Oh, that would be That amazing. would just, like, be so good. I've even actually seen some really good casting options for Ron as, uh, as black as well. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. 
I mean, through the whole text, it talks about his red hair. No, but... yeah, definitely. <laughs> they found both. somebody who was who had both, so. <laughs> that is wild, and I'm here for it. Yeah, them. I saw that, and I was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> Get it. Oh, maybe he, was, he would just be a black person with albinism. Yeah, maybe. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Although their hair really isn't red, but whatever. <laughs> it's a magical universe. I'm sure <laughs> I can make it work. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Mm. But yeah, who would you recast? I honestly don't know. I'm so out of touch with who actors are and mm. names. And it's like one of... I have a lot of information about a lot of random subjects. Mm-hmm. But actors and famous people oh, yeah, is not one of them. Yeah, same. And sports people as well. Yeah. I just... I, uh, yeah, I know I'm like two people. out of touch with that stuff. I, yeah. Yeah. Who could replace Alan Rickman as Snape? That is difficult. Although, I think, what is his name that John Oliver always talks about? Who? John Oliver does that bit where he's, (laughs) he does the bit about, like, the really weirdly sexual, like, innuendos about what's his name. He would be a great Snape. I don't know who that is. I can't think of his name. He's in Star Wars. I've never watched. Kylo Ren. That's not the actor's name, but that's the character he plays in Star Wars. Okay. He would be a great Snape. So, if okay. nobody's ever watched John Oliver's bits about Kylo Ren, like, you are missing out. That shit's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Who do you imagine for... Oh, God. Remus. Hmm. <sighs> I don't know. I'm not good with the actor thing. Yeah, me either. Yeah. If anybody has, like, good suggestions on who they would recast, like... Like the fan casting? Yeah, the fan casting. Yeah. Like, send that shit our way. Yeah. I want to see your suggestions. But I will only accept Black Hermione. Yeah. Why would you even try with anything else? Mm. What do you think of Emma Watson? <clears throat> ambivalent shrug just just like ambivalent shrug is just like my whole feeling about her I don't dislike her I just don't think she was like really appropriate for Hermione and I think how the directors like used her sexualized her yeah it was just like really inappropriate like the whole way through like they characterized her very weird and yeah yeah I had a lot of problems with the movies, so. I also, but I I did really like the seventh, the two parts, mm, part one and part mm. two, the seventh book. The storytelling was good in the in in those yeah. ones. Like they actually had a cohesion. Like you could watch that not having read the books and still know what was going on. I suppose so. Can you believe Peeves isn't in any of the movies? No, that's just asinine to me. <laughs> How could you? <laughs> How could you go through the whole series without mentioning Peeves once? That's so weird. <sighs> what an injustice. That is an injustice. No shot yawning. Okay, any other questions about Ishtar? Um, or- I, I really like that... I think it was so telling... That his dad takes him straight to Hogwarts and even says, like, you know, you don't want to see your mom after Ishtar. Like, pretty much, like, acknowledging that, like, she's a horrible, abusive menace. And, like, only now is he protecting him from it. 
he's protecting them both. Mm. Because he's like, I also don't want to see her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's a gross character. Yeah, I have to say, like, I have no (laughs) interest in unveiling any of that. Mm. You know, like... uh, And also, that's his sister or his cousin he's married to? His cousin. His cousin. Yeah. Like, I don't know what kind of fuckery happened in your life that you ended up married to your cousin who is that awful. Mm-hmm. But, like, you fucked up. Stop it. Yeah. Just stop You could have stood up to this a long time yeah, ago. Like, a long time ago. You had some decisions you had to make, and you made the wrong ones. For many years. Yeah. Yeah, I also kind of imagined his mother as, like, you know how, like, abusive mothers get about their sons? Mm. You know? Especially in relation to, like, their girlfriends. Yes. Or, like, when they start having sex. Yeah, it can get very weird very, very quickly. Like, it it becomes, like, very um, possessive mm. and, like, oh, just super weird. Yeah. So I sort of imagined that. And, like, why even go there? Why? Why? Mm-hmm. Just go back to Hogwarts. Yeah. Run screaming into the distance. <clears throat> no, they have a chill carriage ride. Mm. And I bring back the Pertrons. Yeah, you do. And the Growler. Mm-hmm. They're my favorite characters of the series so far. <laughs> the Pertrons. <laughs> yeah, the only, like, sentient being in this fic that I have kinship with. Yeah. You guys can do no wrong. Yeah, right. Don't forget the dragons. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's true. But I haven't talked about them yet. Okay, they're coming. They're always, Spoilers! They're always on the horizon with you. I know, right? Spoilers, I wrote about dragons <laughs> again. That's my next chapter. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank God. I honestly can't remember what's in my next chapter because we consistently have amnesia about what we write with this thing. No, I dissociate just like yeah. into the void as I write. Yeah, I was trying to like listen real hard while you were reading and like try and take some like notes on discussion topics. I honestly and I don't like, know what I just wow. said. Yeah, like I was like, wow, it's just in one ear and out the other. <laughs> like I am just, just, I am gone. Yeah, it's like the bottle air chapter. Yeah. Goodbye, cognitive functions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is that? A fugue state? Yeah. <laughs> like, Hello, That's me right now. I have dissociative amnesia. I've read this chapter. I wrote this chapter. Yeah. I've read it a million times. I've recorded it previously. Mm-hmm. And yet, I have no idea what happens in there. I just know that it's bad. I just know it's very uncomfortable. That's like my whole childhood. Yeah. It's a profound childhood trauma. Just... With resultant amnesia that just like glosses right yeah. over. <laughs> you don't remember any of this and you don't need you to. You do not need to. Don't open that door. Mm. The brain is a wonderful thing. It does that. <laughs> Thanks for the protection. <laughs> As I'm like, I don't know what I just wrote. Please <laughs> let it be somewhat coherent. Shame. Yep. Oh, and um, I added so many weird details in here. Mm. The absinthe. The absinthe yeah, hallucinations. Right. The absinthe Who knows how much of it was actually real? Yeah. <laughs> Just like an added layer of fuckery <laughs> for my brain. Like, <laughs> could have all just been a hallucination. Yeah, added Carry on. Like denialism. Yeah. Like, I'm just... <laughs> yep. You don't know what's real anymore. Me neither. 
<laughs> Nothing's real. Dissociate till you die. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years. Yeah, right. No. It'll get better. You know how I mentioned that, like, part or blood magic is, like, our level one yeah. issues? And this fic is, like, why we ended up with level one issues? That's so true. It's so grossly true, and yeah. I hate it so much. Yeah, it's, like, way too revealing. Thanks why did we even write this? I'd like to quit now. I think we just, just throw just, out the whole thing. Ghosting. Delete <laughs> this whole thing from the internet. I just, I'd like to leave. No one ever linked me to this shit ever again. Just disappear out into a field. We already did that. We're literally sitting in a field in the middle of nowhere right now. I know, it's great. It's us and the demon horse birds. <clears throat> mm-hmm. This is it. We live on like a seventh plane of existence in a pocket dimension. Probably in Dumbledore. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. We, we said we couldn't bring him up every episode. <laughs> no, you I beg to differ. Oh my god. I refuse to believe that this reality that I keep dissociating away from anyway is inside Dumbledore's ass. I don't know what it is. I don't know where we are in the context of the wizarding world or anything, but I refuse to be that dimension. Oh, God. Ugh. I gotta say, though, Pocket Dimension in Dumbledore's ass is definitely a better plane of existence than our childhoods, so... Fuck you! I'll fucking take it! Fuck I'll take you. it! I'm not gonna complain! Oh <laughs> it's nice in here! If I didn't have such severe amnesia, I would make an argument about that. But I can't, so... Well, I guess here we are. Oh my god. At least we're stuck in the same Pocket Dimension. Oh, thank god. Can you imagine if we were in separate ones? Oh god. We actually we couldn't in... be cottagecore then. <laughs> Do you wanna explain what you just said? Do you wanna just tell everyone in the world how that you spend your time looking at sapphic lesbian cottagecore? I, I lost myself down the cottagecore tumbler. <laughs> and it was hilariously amazing. All the while you're in the background actually chopping wood and making me a fighter <laughs> so I can like make you pie. <laughs> Yeah, on our fucking coal fire stove yeah, in, exactly. a, in a fucking cottage mm-hmm. in the wilderness. <laughs> What's so funny is the whole cottage core is, like, so aesthetic. And then, like, our, I mean, yeah, our life is pretty aesthetic in some ways. And then in other I, ways, I'm, you're, like, I'm, almost I'm, chopping your foot off while cut, And you're, like, lighting yourself on fire. I was covered in bacon <laughs> you like, grease. You, like, yeah, dumped bacon grease all over you. By accident. But then I was, like, in the fire. that the I, axe stuck in the chopping block again. <laughs> I think this is just a way for you to point out all the ways that I'm not aesthetic, which I really hate you for, but I also think you're 100% correct. I never claimed to be cottagecore aesthetic, only cottagecore reality. Yeah, cottagecore reality. <laughs> the reality is, life is weird sometimes. I know you're the aesthetic one. I'm not aesthetic. The tarts I make are kind of nice. Everything you make is nice. Thank you. Everything you you just like crochet, knit, paint, pottery, cooking, gardening. Like everything you touch just becomes like beautifully aesthetic. And I'm over here like I got the axe stuck in something. I'm covered in bacon grease and I might be on fire. 
please help. I need you to come, like, glam up my existence because I am circling the drain. <laughs> but without you, we would not have nice tablecloths. So. Oh, that's true. Are or you... flower arrangements. Yeah. <clears throat> that's true. Yeah. I feel like they would... No, you would have those things if you cared about those things. You would just make them and they'd be pretty. So. <laughs> I would just make you don't them. actually need me for that. I just need you for emotional stability. <laughs> and that's so what I matters. can actually do my knitting. <laughs> Otherwise I'd just be a heap on the floor reading Harry Potter's slut. <laughs> like, ah! Crying. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god. Yeah. Anyways. No more bringing up Dumbledore's ass. <laughs> I mean, We're going to write a whole fic I about it. absolutely no promises. It's We're gonna the write... only thing getting me through this fic right now. <laughs> it's true. We're like clinging to those threads of like, I still have laughter in me. Yeah, exactly. Ha ha ha. It's not all darkness in here. I'll make it to tomorrow. <laughs> Someone called the therapist. <laughs> Didn't you see her today or yesterday? No. <laughs> Didn't you? No, it's Wednesday. Oh, yeah. All the days of the week are just running together. Mm-hmm. I have amnesia about that, too. Yeah, same. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, tomorrow we can do your chapter. And... No, yours is fine, is isn't it? it? I don't know. I don't remember. I honestly I don't honestly know. I honestly don't know what comes next. <laughs> All I know is that... My next chapter, I think I was so like, okay, I was about to swear in another language. (laughs) I heard it coming. (laughs) I was so, wait, what is There's no English equivalent for that phrase. Fed up? Yeah, okay, that's close enough. But that sounds so bleh. I was so fed up. I was so stuffed full in my ass. Literal that is translation. the literal translation. I had my ass so full. <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Wait. Oh my god. No, it's, I, 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 I was so... <clears throat> had my ass so full of the dissociative amnesia <laughs> nightmare that was Ishtar yeah. that I just made a happy chapter. That's like... Oh doo, doo, doo. Yeah, exactly. Dragons. <laughs> yeah, I need a reason to live. Yeah. Dragons. <laughs> That's a good one. Great reason. Totally real. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. That's good stuff. <laughs> Man, that's a good phrase. Yeah. That language is full of great phrases mm. that sometimes are way better than anything English has to offer. <clears throat> yeah. And that is one of them. That's, yeah, it's definitely one of them. I think it might be my favorite one. No, no. No, 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 I know what my favorite one is. <laughs> Wait, I can't say it. It's Why not? Oh, I don't know. I guess I can. It's very funny to try and explain. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Chafalik. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I thought you were talking about the taxi incident. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no, that was very funny. That was, really funny. That was very funny. That was one of my favorites. Yeah, no, no, I'm partial to chafalik. Yeah, chafalik is good. Chafal, though, I use, like, almost on a daily fucking basis. Yeah. 
Because <laughs> I am consistently hurtful about most things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's something very satisfying to be, about the concept of being like, look, my ass is full. It's too full. You know full what one of this. my favorite insults is, though? What? Is a dus. <laughs> oh my god. It's one oh my of my god. all time. Because, like, it's a literal translation to a box. <laughs> 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 like, great how creative well done <laughs> yeah oh that's, that's a good one that's good stuff so yeah do you think this thing has cut us off again probably no it's still going but i think we should end it anyway yeah it's, it's bedtime. bedtime oh my god it's so late okay good night okay good night everyone thanks for listening We'll catch you next time that we have dissociative amnesia. <laughs> the next time Tomorrow. we're helpful. Yeah.